It's good to be back here after a, a number of months after <clears throat> an illness and um, time in the hospital. And just a personal word of thanks um, for that, for your prayers and concerns. And uh, during that <clears throat> time in the hospital, um, I actually thought I was dying. And um, turns out it was just the, the fever and some strong medicine and some pain. But it did uh, cause me to think about things I've never thought about before. And that may be reflected in some of what I say, so I hope this is not too dark this morning. Um, but with that semi-ominous uh, disclaimer, let me <coughs> read the text to you this morning. This is from the book of James, chapter 4, the first 12 verses. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it? It is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word this morning. Thank you for its power and its uh, insight and grip on our hearts. Would you use it again this day to strengthen and encourage and help in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, it's New Year's Eve. That's a time when many people survey their lives. I guess that's what I've been doing and, and take stock of things. Many of you know the name of Jack Miller. Jack Miller was the founder of the uh, Sonship Discipleship Course. He was a pastor, he was a missionary, he was an author, he was one of my heroes. Well, he decided that he would try this idea of assessing his life and see if maybe he needed to change something. In Sonship, he preached and taught that it's, and I agree, it's quite difficult to have an accurate self-assessment. Is that even possible, an accurate self-assessment? So he thought he would ask his wife's help. And so he said to her, Rosemarie, 
if there is one thing you could change about me, what would it be? Now that's quite a question, right? If you really expect an answer. So he asked her, Rosemary, if there was one thing you could change about me, what, we would be, what would it be? And she thought about it and she finally said, well, Jack, you don't really listen to me. And he said, no, if there was one thing <laughs> that you could change about me, what would it be? It's a pretty sad answer, actually, isn't it? Uh, his response perfectly proved her point, and he didn't see it. And I think that's where I've been coming from recently. Uh, he said later, and this is what struck me and why I'm bringing this up, he said how that experience with her uncovered his deep pride and lack of humility. So that's what we're doing this morning. Pride humbled by God is the the title. And so we come this morning to the most deeply rooted, all-encompassing, fundamental sin, and it's pride. James has talked earlier in this uh, book about the tongue and the evils of the tongue, and he has said that if the tongue is the, he called it a master switch, a master switch that tiny little thing that controls all the rest of the body. And he has said that if that's the tongue, then that controls all other parts of the body, and so pride would be the sin that we commit the most. So pride is the well, the source, the fountainhead of all. It is the engine that drives all other sins and we're mostly blind to it. It's the default screen when we boot up the computer of our lives every day. We don't even think about turning the switch on, but it's before we even run a program of our lives any day, it's the operating system. It's the thing that's on the screen before you do anything. And you might rightly say, well, I've, I've never robbed a bank, actually. I've never murdered someone. True. But all of us, as James is saying here, are guilty of pride in its many <clears throat> and varied forms. And pride expresses itself in an endless number of ways because it's the common denominator of all sin. And James has been building up to this throughout his letter. He's been saying things like uh, proud hypocrites, Claim to be religious, but show no fruit, he says. He says, proud people claim to be in favor of helping the poor, but they never actually do it. Proud people boast and use the tongue to terrible effect. That's kind of why the introduction to this text this morning is about the spats and fighting and bickering that they were doing. Just before our text today, James has contrasted prideful worldly wisdom, on the one hand, worldly wisdom, with godly wisdom. And unlike the godly wisdom of what we could call peacemaking, which is quite different from peacekeeping, but the godly wisdom of peacemaking <clears throat> is contrasted with worldly wisdom of exercising selfishness, and pride, and it's, James is telling us, it's fundamentally a 
opposed to God and the righteousness that he requires. So, with that lead-in, I can give you my outline. For the rest, there's, there's three points. The first one is, in verses 1 through 4, we're going to say worldly wisdom leads to alienation from God. If you follow worldly wisdom, you're on a path to alienating yourself from God. That's the first point. <clears throat> Second point is going to be that God's remedy for this pride is the gospel, and that's verses 5 through 10. <clears throat> and then thirdly, he says in verses 11 and 12 that pride puts you in the place of God if you follow it to its end. So point number one, in, in the first four verses, James tells us that following worldly wisdom leads to alienation from God. And he says, when we get into spats and disagreements, that no one ever really consciously decides to pursue them all the way to alienation from God, but under inspiration, James says there's a connection. So we see that self-focused pride produces a hatred of others, spats, fighting, and so on, fights, quarrels, in verse 1, <clears throat> erupt when inner desires are blocked by others. You know how this works. You, you have strong feelings about things, and you set about to express them in one way or another, or maybe even put them into action, but someone pushes back and blocks or stops you in some way. And sometimes it's only a verbal blocking by disagreement, but it escalates. It can escalate when the other person takes action to block you, and our reaction often is, how dare you? You don't know who you're messing with here. And so these intense feelings surprise us, but rise up, and then all kinds of evil Reactions rise in our minds, and we find ourselves fantasizing about how we're going to retaliate. Don't cross me. You will pay if you do. And you know, TV shows and movies have developed this theme in countless ways. There's even a show called Revenge. Betrayal and revenge are portrayed in all the realms and all subjects of TV, movies, um, politics, romance, war, family matters, and so on. <clears throat> well, God has put us in community with each other, and there's a strong and unbreakable connection between how we treat others and our relationship to God, is what James is getting at here. The self-focused love of the world is just that. It's a worldly orientation to life and things. And again, we're so blind to this, you may be sitting there thinking, Anne, go, go on. what are you trying to say? It just seems natural to us, though. It's, it feels right, but here James is telling us it's a red flag of warning when you feel this anger rise in you. It's a red flag of warning to the people of God. When anger against others rises up, let's learn to make this connection that we are just one step away, or at least headed towards, alienation from God. 
We see this more clearly in verses 2 and 3 as he develops it. James says, self-focused pride kills prayer. He says, let's be honest and let's see that this really is a problem with God. And that is nowhere more evident than in our prayer life. He says, he has just said that you have spats and interpersonal problems among yourselves, but now he turns it Godward. And his reasoning is that our estimation of God's power and love and presence will be revealed by our prayers. And so here, Pastor James knows the human heart well, and he says, when your goal is ultimately selfish, whether you're aware of it or not, you will stop asking God for things because of the ever-growing gap between self-centered requests and godly requests. And verse 3 says, it's more than just the request itself, it's the motive behind it as well. It says you ask with wrong motive because you're really planning to use the resources you're asking God for on yourself. Now, I remember being a new Christian in a prayer meeting many years ago, and a man in the group um, shared a prayer request, and he said, please pray that the offer that he had put on a big new house would be accepted he said he wanted to use it for the Lord and have people over for Bible studies. Now, God alone knows in full, the full intent of the heart. And skip ahead to verse 12, who am I to judge my neighbor? But I don't know what happened with the rest of the story with him, but I remember thinking when he made that request, I thought, hmm, I wonder. I was watching him passively, maybe actively, passively, and I never remember him having a Bible study after he got the house. The point here is that Christians are prone to selfishness even in prayer. We come to know and believe something of the power and the goodness of the Lord, and when our main bent is selfishness, this can creep in, even with Christians. Confession time, um, yeah, that guy did wrong with that request, but... Um, <clears throat> I found, found myself doing something similar. See if you can identify. In another prayer meeting, someone used a particularly powerful prayer phrase, and the others in the group went, mm, yes, Lord, kind of quietly. So I said, mental note to myself, use that phrase later in another prayer meeting. But the selfishness of it came out as I realized I now had to remember who was present in case they were at the first prayer meeting. <laughs> this is the, the pride and the depth of all of this. So let's use this text to examine ourselves and our prayer lives. And this is very convicting uh, in both content and motive, but also in amount, how much. It's convicting to me, but the text would ask, how much do we pray? How much or how little we pray is an indicator of our faith. Why pray to someone we don't really believe can and wants to help us? No one will come out and say that. 
But we should realize, too, on the, the positive side that there's going to be an increasing trust in God as we walk with Him and pray to Him, and we're changed by our prayers. They don't change God, they change us. We hear Him say yes to this, no to that, wait on this, and we read our Bibles and we see His ways more and more coming and our prayers meshing and blending with the wisdom of God over time. And by this point, we know, <clears throat> for example, that God is not going to answer some prayers. Um, Lord, please help my bank robbery to go well tomorrow. <laughs> Hopefully you stopped <laughs> those, those kinds of prayers. But it, because it's funny, you realize it's happening. You would never. Well, then we see next that not loving others and not praying eventually leads to spiritual adultery. We didn't expect to see that word here. Not just alienation anymore. Self-focused pride leads to spiritual adultery. We ignore, you think about it how it goes, we ignore and disobey all the things that God would require in a marriage, and then one day, <clears throat> one of the spouses says, this just isn't working, I want out. Physical adultery occurs when one of the marriage partners selfishly looks outside of the marriage to a third person to get what they thought they weren't getting from their spouse. Well, likewise, spiritual adultery occurs when we selfishly look outside of our covenant relationship with God to any other person or thing that we think God has withheld from us, and we become adulterers. And James tells us that Christians are prone to want worldly things instead of God, and that's the heart of idolatry, to use something else, anything else, to get what only God can give. Let's not pretend this isn't so. Remember, James is writing this to Christians. He's talking about worldly things, and we mean, need to realize too, we mean not so much the objects themselves, like the guy who prayed for the house, but what we think they can give. Things like uh, peace or comfort, joy, good standing in the community, uh, health, protection, safety, joy, happiness, pleasure, acceptance, forgiveness, good reputation. Much of what we do is really after those kind of things. And that makes it even more hidden to us. Well, God has, in fact, given all those things and more to us in the person and work of Christ in the gospel of grace. But, we, but because of pride, we say, well, thank you, that's great, but I'd like to try it myself with other means. That's adultery. Proverbs 14, 12 and 16, 25 both say the same thing. It says, there is a way which seems right to a man, but the end of that is the way of death. See, that's what happens when selfish pride rules over godly wisdom. That those verses in Proverbs are saying, you're going to say, I'm sure my way is right. My short-circuited, adulterous way is right. It just feels right to do it that way. 
So the, so as texts are saying in the short term, it has the feel of life to be adulterous in this way, but the Bible is saying in the long term, it leads to death. This is the feel of faith. It's to choose by a will sanctified by grace when it humanly feels like death. Put it another way, if you offer a worldly man godly wisdom, his first response is going to be, that won't work. He would say, that feels like death to me to do it that way. Well, no, the Bible says the real death will come later if you follow selfish pride. Well, what are we to do about this? I'm, I'm glad we used <clears throat> earlier in the service Romans 7, 24, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Who indeed? Who indeed? And that's our main point number two, and that is that God's remedy for severe pride is the gospel of grace, Christ himself. This is verses uh, 5 through 10. It's the gospel of grace, meaning Christ himself, given as the alone sacrifice in payment for all the sins of pride. And he is the alone producer of all good works, done in true humility, credited to us by faith as if we had done them ourselves. This universal horror and evil of fully expressed human pride is in the gospel met head on. It is stopped dead in its tracks and destroyed by King Jesus. That's what the gospel is for. It's why you had to be elected. That was our one-sentence meditation in the bulletin. Um, <clears throat> one of my favorite authors, Shane Rosenthal, said that election is the only medicine strong enough to kill the virus of human pride. You must understand this about the Bible and about God and about spiritual life. So on this New Year's Eve, mark it well again, that's what this is all about. The Bible isn't about five ways to raise children, or three ways for better time management, or four ways to be successful in business. Yes, you can find principles for life in the Word of God, but all that comes after this most important central fact is addressed. Human pride and all its far-reaching evil is severe. And it has its roots and tentacles in and around everything. And God's powerful remedy for it is the gospel of grace. James makes this a sweeping statement about the Bible in verse 5. He isn't quoting any one verse, but rather is making <clears throat> a summary statement. Why do you think the scripture says he yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? The indwelling spirit is dead set against our pride. One of the primary purposes and functions of the spirit is to get pride out of us. Every believer is indwelt by the spirit of Christ himself, 
Uh, he's also called the spirit of sonship or the spirit of adoption. And his desire is to get it into our spiritual bones that we now belong to God and are his own dear sons and daughters and we are no longer orphans. In this way, the spirit is intensely jealous, James is telling us here, jealous of our affections for idols or anything that we would look to that God should be or do for us. The Holy Spirit will stop at nothing to sanctify us. Do you see the incredible privilege that it is to belong to God? Do you see what an astounding thing happened when he said, I will be their God and they will be my people? You cannot be snatched out of his hand. He said, in no wise will I cast you out. He has taken you on as a salvation project and I want to tell you something this morning, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. You're going to make it because he is on record as promising that. Things may be happening to you in your life right now that cast doubt on that, but let me tell you, the Spirit is at work. He will do it. Why is that? Well, because verse 6 tells us, the Scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Don't miss this powerful fact. God opposes your pride and mine. And just think about that for a minute. If God opposes it, if God opposes anything, but if he opposes this, what do you think will happen to it? If God opposes it. Will he say, I'm sorry, I tried, but I got all caught up in the red tape and the legal process and was busy doing other things and I forgot about you? No, no. The Spirit himself is working this in us as job one every day. So let me ask you something at this point. Are you experiencing any problems or frustrations in your life? Well, I would submit to you that in light of God's word this morning that he is working on your pride. Now, maybe not every single problem is directly related to pride in this way, but many are, maybe most are. And another thing, as he brings up resisting the devil, another thing that we should realize is that Satan doesn't want us to see any of this. He would much rather you see your problems as completely unrelated to your pride. If anything, he wants you to think that your problems are a result of a God who has all the good stuff but won't give you any because you've been bad or something like that. However, moving away from Satan towards God breaks that pride, says resist the devil and he will flee from you did you notice the Holy Spirit is trying to work something in you in verse 5 and the devil is trying to work something else in you in verse 7? And they are at odds. There are spiritual battles involved here. Now, don't get weird and start seeing demons behind every bush, but know this, Satan is real and alive. He's not omnipresent. 
but he's real and alive and has minions and workers. And he doesn't want you to see any of what this text is saying. He wants to blind you to it. He doesn't want you to connect any dots between your well-entrenched pride and any problems you're having that, heaven forbid, any of them are your fault. If you make any of those connections, you would see your need for Christ, and we can't have that. But the Spirit wants you to see that is, it is exactly that. Your pride, my pride, is in fact the very source of it all. And Satan would say, no, 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 that's, that's not what the Bible's saying. It, it couldn't possibly be your fault. And isn't that the mantra of 21st century society? It's not your fault. Yet, the closer we draw to God, James is telling us, the farther from Satan we go, the more we see the true facts of the matter. And then when you read in verse 8, and following, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter to mourning, and your world-based joy to gloom. And we see that the sin of pride must be taken seriously. James sounds serious about this. He doesn't seem to think none of this is your fault. Now, this makes spiritual sense. If you think about it, wouldn't the deepest thing in us, closest to us, part of our core, our pride, wouldn't that be the hardest thing to see? We tend not to believe we are this prideful, especially because the stakes are so high, if it's true. If pride is the core of my being and pride has to die, then I myself might have to die. And it is precisely at that moment that the indwelling spirit perks up and says, what was that you said? The old you must die? Did you say that? Yes. Yes. The spirit says, I've been waiting for this. Now we can get somewhere. Why is this so hard for us? We've been getting at it, but the big reason, one big reason is our natural blindness to it. But think again with me. These are some obvious thoughts, I know. But whose eyes do you see the world through? Uh, whose brain do you use to interpret what your eyes see? Whose emotions do you use to express how you feel about what you see? Whose hands do you use to do things about it? Whose feet? do you use to go places or not go places where you want to go or don't want to go because of what you see? Whose money do you use to get what you want? In other words, I'll just say it, I am very intimately related to me. And let's be honest, I'm not merely intimately related to me I, in fact, like me very much. I am very positively disposed to me. I am, in fact, in love with me. First comes me, then comes me again, then comes you. 
All of this, is, we use this phrase, second nature. All of this isn't second nature to me. It's actually first nature. I'm very understanding of me and sympathetic to me. When I fail, that's why I blame shift and make excuses. I have weak points. You have sins. And so on. In this sinful line of thinking, I was thinking about, I didn't, but I was thinking about titling this sermon, Of All My Virtues, I'm Proudest of My Humility. <laughs> no, I must come to see, we must come to see that it was my pride, it was all of that that put him on the cross. That takes great humility, James is trying to tell us. The gospel is the most humbling thing there is because it says our prideful sins are of such magnitude that Jesus himself had to die to pay for them. And that the perfect, righteous life of none other than the Son of God himself had to be lived for us to please the Father. Humble yourselves before God in the light of that. Admit this is so. Verse 10, admit that predestination is necessary. He's saying the way down in humility is the way up. Verse 6 says, when this happens, he will give you more grace. It will be piled up for you the more you admit that you don't have it in yourself. This is something else Satan hopes you never get hold of, that there will be even more grace for you in humility. Well, that brings us to the third main point. Lastly, James wants us to see how continuing in selfishness in regard to how we treat others actually now leads to usurping the place of God himself. That's point number three. Pride ultimately puts us in the place of God. Verses 11 and 12. So to underscore the need for humility instead of pride, James shows what happens when we express that pride. He uses the example of slandering or speaking against or judging others. And you think about that, the, the logic of what he's saying, when we do those things, obviously we're pridefully saying, well, what the other person said or did was, in our self-righteous opinion, wrong. And when we do this to others, we are in fact functioning as the law. So he's saying, that is, a, a judgmental spirit shows contempt for God and his law. Slander and judgment of others are obviously sins of pride. And so the clear question, obvious question would be, well, who put you in the position of judge over them? And this is what James is asking. Who made you the final arbiter? That is the position we take on ourselves when we speak against others or judge them. We're saying we know best. You tried. You got it wrong. I'm judging you and fixing it because I know best. And when we do it, we are saying that we are, in fact, above the law when it has to do with spiritual matters. And James is saying it's especially heinous when we do it with God. You might even be saying this to God. Not only are we keeping the law, our, not only are we not keeping the law 
ourselves when we judge it. We are, in fact, putting ourselves above it, above God himself. And this is the terrible result of pride. Again, not so surprising when we see how dead set against it God is. God is, in fact, if you think about it, being loving towards us by telling us that we are not the law. He is the ultimate expression of goodness, and so when we try to go above and beyond him, we're saying he left something out. He missed something, and we're here to help. What? Arrogance and pride, James is saying. And then verse 12 says there really can only be one person in the position of lawgiver and judge. And so by implication, James says a judgmental spirit must be destroyed. Need to catch this. He says that judgmental spirit must be destroyed, meaning you can't just not use it and still keep it, it must be removed, destroyed. There's simply no place for it. There's only one judge, and that job has been taken, and it isn't you, and it isn't me. So when we find ourselves judging others, if we can be self-aware enough, let that, like we said, remember earlier we said, Anger should be a red flag of warning for a Christian. In the same way, if you catch yourself judging someone, let that also be a red flag of warning that we're on dangerous ground. We'll close with um, one good, positive, exciting thought. Let's remember something. There's only one truly humble man who for the joy set before him endured the cross. There is only one man who had every right in the universe to be proud. Yet he laid his glory aside to bear our sins. Only one man has already grieved and mourned and wailed for us. Only one man has been humbled to the depths and borne every sin of his people and then raised to the highest place of honor to the right hand of the Father. So let us humble ourselves again today as we begin a new year and let's throw ourselves on his mercy. And when we do, he will give us more grace. So let's ask for it now. Let's pray as we close. Gracious Father, we do right now throw ourselves on your lavish mercy and grace. We pray you would bind the work of our enemy Satan who is the father of lies and the master deceiver, help us to see our pride and then more fully repent of it as we in this way truly grow as your children. Your word says you oppose the proud and so we ask that your indwelling spirit would show it to us and we realize that prayer will likely cause us pain. And some of us here may not really mean it, but many do. And so for those of us who are truly yours, we ask in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. It is